Well, good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, Let me add my welcome to Richard's. Uh, It's great to see you all today. As Richard said, we're doing things a little bit differently today. Um, Two things are different. Uh, One is, normally you will know that our habit is to, um, when we're teaching on a Sunday, to pick a passage of the Bible and and to work through it together. Um, today, I want to speak a little bit more thematically about the subject of leadership. And uh, I'm excited to do that today because I, I, I think there's a good number of you who are fairly new to our church. And uh, I, I think this afternoon we have a great opportunity not just to commission Luke, but to think about the whole subject of what we're trying to be as a church family here and think about the whole subject of leadership. The second difference is that we're doing our commissioning part of the service at the end. So when I finish talking, that won't be the end of the service. Boo. No, you don't mean that. Um, when we get to the end of service, we'll hopefully have a slightly shorter talk. <laughs> you'll, t- you'll tell me that at the end. And uh, we'll sing a song, and then the children are going to come back up from a Sunday school. We're going to invite Luke to the front, and we're going to commission him uh, to the work here um, the reason I want to have the commissioning part at the end, my, my thinking is that what I really want to do is give you such a biblical vision of what leadership should look like that I hope will stir your heart. And my aim is that when we get to the end, you will be saying in your hearts, yes, yes. This is a good and appropriate and exciting thing to be doing. So we're going to do the Bible first, and then we'll commission Luke at the end. Let me first of all give you a main point, and it's this. In terms of leadership, Jesus radically turns the values of this world upside down. That That is really in a sense, everything I want to say today. Jesus radically turns the values of this world upside down. Helen read to us from Luke chapter 22, and uh, she read from Luke's gospel. And uh, you can immediately see this kind of radical turning upside down of the world's values when Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest and the one who rules like one who serves. And then Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is saying, this is how the world is. This is how the world operates every day. But not so with you. And it's not so with me. Everything is turned upside down. For the Lord Jesus, leadership is not about dominance and control or oppression or selfish authoritarian cruelty. Leadership for Jesus is about generous, servant-hearted, truthful and unselfish service. Jesus makes two observations about leadership here in Luke chapter 22. 
The first one is that often leaders see themselves in some way as being superior to other people and they end up loading it over them, looking down on other people, the people they consider to be beneath them. But the second point Jesus makes is that these kind of leaders often claim to be doing that for the common good. Jesus says here that they love to be called benefactors. They love to be thought of as kind and as having the best interests of people at heart. I think Jesus here is talking about particular leaders in his day. You can think of leaders now that you know in the public sphere who would behave like this. He's caricaturing them. I think he's even poking fun at them. Your leaders have power over you and they like to call it kindness. One writer says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise brutal, selfish authority yet are given the more flattering title, benefactors, as though they exist to help the needy. You can almost hear leaders saying, isn't it obvious that I'm doing all this for your own good? While oppressing the poor and getting rich off their backs. I think most people in the world know that somehow... That is wrong. What Jesus says here, I don't think anyone would argue with, would they? Even in the business world, quite apart from any kind of Christian values, even the business world has been realizing this. Just this week, I came across an article that tried to tell the difference between a leader and a boss. The difference between a leader and a boss. Let me show you um, a few things. Leaders are servants. Bosses have servants. Leaders share information. Bosses hide information. Knowledge is power, isn't it? It's interesting that in the Gospels, Jesus was always an information sharer. He was always telling his disciples everything about his master's business. Leaders emphasize people and character. Bosses tend to emphasize tasks and profit. Leaders motivate people from the inside. Bosses tend to motivate people from the outside. Leaders train people. Bosses often hire and fire people. Leaders submit to authority. Bosses are in charge. Leaders earn respect. Bosses demand respect. I think it can often be true that leaders look out for others while bosses look out for themselves. All of this has a massive effect on people, doesn't it? The same writer who wrote those headings said this, people want their boss's position, but they tend to want their leader's character. When people have a boss, the thought process is usually something like, I want to be the boss so I can do the job better than he does. When people have a leader, they think, I want to be like them so that I can be a better leader. 
People tend to want a leader in their lives. They generally want the boss to get off their backs. I don't know, maybe one of the ways you can tell if a person is a boss or a leader is to see what people do when the boss or the leader isn't there. Have people really bought into the vision and mission of an organization so that they work just as hard when no one is watching? If so, they're being led. If they can't wait for their, to be on their own, they probably have a boss. In the end, people tolerate a boss, but they will love and respect a leader. It's hard to argue with all of that, isn't it? We seem to know it's true, yet bosses seem to be common. And I think it is fair to say that leaders seem to be very rare. In 1968, Martin Luther King preached a very famous sermon uh, in Atlanta called The Drum Major Instinct. Um, I need to explain that. We, we do have some Americans here now. Um, we sometimes have marching bands in the UK, don't we? I'm learning from Luke that this is a big deal in the US, though. We, we were watching Luke's own college football team, and there seemed to me to be more band than ball. Um, but the drum major is the person who is at the front of the parade. You can picture it. They wear fancy uniforms. And um, the drum major is at the front of parade. He or she sometimes even has a nice little stick that they twirl. So as the, as the music is going on, the drum major is at the front twiddling his stick and the band is behind him. You can picture the scene. Um, Martin Luther King preached this sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And he argued that all of us have within us this deep desire to be the person at the front of the parade. And he, he suggests in this sermon that this is basically both the reason why we have racism and it's also the reason why we often tend to live above our means. The problem is we want to be first. We desire recognition. We crave respect. And it's all too easy to demonize those who are not like us in order to make ourselves look good twirling the baton. Jesus turns all this on its head and gives a new definition of greatness. And let me quote to you from Luther King's sermon. This is what he said. Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That is a new definition of greatness. And it's this afternoon here, but in the sermon he said, and this morning, the thing that I like about it, by giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. Everybody. Because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. 
You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics. Can't even say it. In physics to serve, you only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. In other words, Luther King is saying, if you want to be first, fine. But don't be first at twirling a little stick at the front so everyone can see you. Instead, be first in love. Be first in service. Be first in humility. It's a compelling argument, isn't it? I think when we hear Jesus say things like this, we secretly do go, yes, in our hearts, we instinctively know that the world would be a better place. The interesting thing, though, is that even though we know this is true, we find it so hard to do, don't we? We promise ourselves that we'll be a better employee when the boss stops behaving like a jerk. We'll be better bosses if those staff in my team stop being so lazy. It's always the other person who should listen to this rather than me. This passage we read from Luke's Gospel is amazing because of when it happened. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. He has just given them bread and wine, symbolizing his death for their sins. They've spent the last three years following him, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles. This is what we now know as the Last Supper. And the disciples of Jesus are doing what? They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. While Jesus is serving them, they're discussing who should be the drum major and have the stick. Imagine a football match. I've been to a few football matches. Did I ever tell you that I went to the FA Cup final once? Imagine the FA Cup final, the football match. The manager is preparing his team for the biggest game of their lives. There's a trophy on the line. They've trained all year. He's coached them. They know the strategy. And as they're getting changed to go and play, they're squabbling about who should be the captain. Or who has the most skill? One writer comments on this scene here. Jesus is willingly embracing his own humiliation and while he is preparing himself for the darkest act of humiliation in the history of the world, his disciples are arguing about their own glory. Yes, Jesus radically change the values of this world upside down. He is deliberately making here a massive contrast as he shows that true spiritual greatness is not lording it over other people but putting ourselves below others to serve them. Another writer says, Jesus' system 
was entirely different. The senior leader with the most experience must adapt an attitude as if he were the youngest with no experience. No leadership responsibility, no honours expected. Whoever had decision-making responsibility should make those decisions as if he were a servant, totally dependent on the decision-maker. You do not seek for greatness or recognition, Jesus said. You seek for opportunities truly to be a doer of good for the rest of your family. So, let's park this main point and remember it. And with that truth in mind, I want to say three things. One of them is a longer thing and two of them are very quick things. So, first of all, Jesus radically turns the values of this world upside down because Jesus himself is radically and beautifully different. Jesus says himself here to his disciples who are squabbling about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus says to them, I am among you as one who serves. His leadership is servant-hearted and generous. Now, someone told me once, I don't know who it was, that one of the ways that we learn things is by seeing contrast. Um, Often the way we learn what something is is by seeing what it isn't. That's true in life, isn't it? People learn by contrast. So, I want to do something a little bit unusual here. I'm always nervous doing this because I don't know if it'll work, but I I hope this will help you. Here's what we're going to do. The Bible speaks a lot about the struggle between good and evil. You'll, You'll know that. But one of the ways that the struggle between good and evil is described and portrayed for us in the Bible is the recognition that good and evil are not just abstract concepts, but they're deeply personal. So here's what we're going to do. So that we can see things more clearly, I want to suggest to you that ultimate goodness is found in Jesus. And I want to suggest to you, on the other hand, that ultimate evil is embodied in the devil. The Bible begins by speaking of a powerful evil being. It describes him as the ancient serpent. And we read throughout the Bible of the existence of this character in this great drama called the devil or Satan, who is the arch enemy of God. In the Gospels, we read of an encounter that Jesus has with this evil personality. I suppose that's the, one of the places where this struggle is personified. So let me, let me spell out some contrasts here. First of all, I want to make this comment. Biblically, good and evil are not equal and opposite. Many people have the idea that the universe is in a kind of equilibrium. And um, duality. People in Eastern religions will talk about the yin and the yang. Uh, Good and evil are just merely opposites. 
And you need both of those things for the universe to be balanced. That's not how the Bible describes uh, the, the world. The Bible describes goodness as being something inherent. And the evil is an anomaly. Goodness is good. Goodness was there at the beginning and it will be there at the end. This is because Jesus is the creator who was there at the beginning. But evil is something transient because the devil has not existed forever. He's a created being. Uh, this raises some important questions. We haven't got time to go into all of them today. But if God is good, and if, if he is the eternal creator, where does the devil fit into that? Did God create the devil to be evil? Because if he did, we, we might say that God is therefore the author of evil, and that would mean that maybe he isn't actually good. I think the answer to this question is only hinted at in the Bible. We're not told everything, but it appears that the being we now call the devil wasn't always evil. God initially created the devil as the most unimaginably good, powerful, beautiful, and majestic being. But this being that God created was not content. Rather, he wanted to be God. So the Bible describes the devil as a glorious, good creature initially who fell from his lofty position because of his pride. I want to turn you to a very mysterious passage in the Old Testament, um, I'll read it to you, or if you want to find it, it's in Isaiah chapter 14. Um, let me read uh, some words for you from verse 12. This passage is speaking about an ancient human king of Babylon, and yet it does seem to hint at something much more. Listen to these words. Uh, the prophet writes, How you have fallen from heaven! O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the depths. Did you notice the five very strong I wills in, the, in that passage? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Was that five? In chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, Jesus says something very significant. He sends his disciples out. We were reading about it in Matthew. And when they come back, they, can't, they, they almost can't get their words out quick enough. It's been amazing. Even demons submit to us in your name, Jesus. And Jesus says something very significant to them. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
from heaven. I, I, I want you to know that the origin of evil is not found in the heart of God. The origin of evil is that it arose in the heart of the most brilliant of all God's created beings. Goodness. That's a strange word on there, isn't it? Goodness is enduring. Evil is transient. Evil, the definition of evil is that it is always grasping what it does not own. Even wanting what is God's alone. And this is the background to why a serpent slithers into the Garden of Eden. The evil that had already arisen in the heart of the devil now comes to pollute God's good creation. And his whole project was to tempt human beings to do the same thing that he had done. To rebel against the goodness of God and to live as if they were their own boss. Their sin wasn't so much eating a piece of fruit. Their sin was coming to the conclusion that God was not good enough for them and they're choosing them to go their own way and replace him with themselves and with other things. Why, why have we looked at all this? I, I want you to see this as a contrast because one of the ways we can see what goodness is is to portray clearly what evil is really like and does. Evil is always grasping goodness. Whoops. Is always giving. Evil grasps. Goodness gives. Now, if, if we're going to go to Isaiah 14 to see the stunning fall from glory of the devil, I, I think we want to go to Philippians 2 to see the stunning beauty of Jesus. Let me read these words to you. Paul writing in the New Testament. He says to a church there, he says to us, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who? Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Instead of grasping power that actually was rightfully his, Jesus relinquishes it. Though he is God... It's almost as if he lays it all to one side to be born as a human being. It's incredible. 
And even then, as a human being, he doesn't come as a king in pomp and ceremony and glory. He comes as a servant. And even then, he's humbled even still further. And he submits himself even to the horror of death on a cross. Jesus, God in human flesh, condemned to die like a criminal. The contrast that I'm trying to describe then is this. Evil has a clenched fist and shouts, it's mine! Jesus has an open hand and says, it's yours. Do you know what I fear the most here? The thing I fear the most is preaching a lame sermon that any liberal, moral, religious person could preach. I want you to know that I'm not preaching something here that a good businessman could preach. I'm not preaching something here that a secular humanist could preach. I'm not preaching something here even that a rabbi or a Muslim imam could preach. I do not want you to hear me say this afternoon, try harder to be humble because that will be nice for everyone. God forbid that I should try and moralize you. What I want to show you is the unique and utter beauty of Jesus. And for him to so captivate your heart, as you see him in all his splendid, glorious generosity, that you would say in your heart, I love him more than I love anything else. Do you know what makes the difference? The thing that is unique to Christianity, the one historical event that transcends every other human event, is surely the cross. The great pinnacle of all of history is the cross where evil did its worst and goodness did its best. Even at the cross, evil does its worst. In its grasping for power, evil does its best to get rid of Christ, to eliminate him, to vividly and violently express the fact that we will not have this man to reign over us. If this were an election and we were casting our votes to our shame, we have rejected him and gone our own way. We've chosen a different candidate to the right one. But friends, at the cross, goodness does its best. The response of Jesus is not to fire us like Lord Sugar. It isn't to exterminate us. It isn't to condemn us. His response is to come into this sin-broken world and take our sin Rebellion, pride, shame on his shoulders and absorb it all. The innocent, righteous, generous Christ. Evil tries to destroy Jesus 
Jesus conquers evil by being destroyed. Listen, the cross of Jesus is the logical conclusion of evil. That the cross is where evil ends. But the cross of Jesus is also the logical conclusion of his goodness. Oh man, I I hope you can see that only the cross ensures that goodness is enduring and permanent. Whereas evil, though painful and real and devastating, is in fact an anomaly. It is a blip. Evil cannot and will not prevail. Love wins in the end. And how do we know? Because this same Jesus who died rose from the dead. Smashing the status quo. And ascended to take his rightful place as the king over all other kings and the lord over all other lords. The throne of this universe, friends, is not the throne of a brutal dictator. It is a throne of grace. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we yearn for and need? I know we're thinking primarily today about leadership, but let me just digress for a wee little moment because I don't want any of you to miss the call here from God to each and every one of you. This is not rocket science. God is calling each of you to repent and to believe in Jesus, his son. What that means is turning from our sin and pride and self-reliance and turning to Jesus in faith and dependence. This gospel is actually the reverse of the Garden of Eden. There, the temptation was to believe that we could go our own way and that God was not enough. The gospel tells us that was a big, fat lie. And God is calling us now in the gospel to change sides, to say goodbye to all this ugly grasping and hello to this beautiful, royal generosity. Jesus calls us to stop trying to twirl the baton at the front of the parade And allow him to take his rightful place in our lives as the good and faithful king that he really is. One of the other wonderful motifs of leadership in the Bible is that of the shepherd. I'm so glad that we sang that song um, from Psalm 23 earlier. Jesus claims to be the ultimate good shepherd and he contrasts himself with evil shepherds who don't have the best interest of the sheep at heart. Let me read to you some words of Jesus from John chapter 10. Therefore Jesus said again, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons his sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The leadership of Jesus isn't controlling, coercive, abusive, manipulative, or destructive. This is the good shepherd who came to lay down his life to save ours. What has all this got to do then with us commissioning Luke? That's what we were doing, wasn't it? I have so much I could say. In fact, in the office this week, I was talking to Luke and Ian, and I, they said, what, what are you going to preach on Sunday? And I, and I said, this, this is what I'm feeling. Oops. This is what I'm feeling. And their faces dropped. I think they were sat on the other side. It felt like an interview. Their faces dropped, and they said, you can't do that in an hour. <laughs> I, I have so much. I wanted to talk to you about what it means to be a church leader. I wanted to talk to you about our steps diagram that some of you haven't even seen that articulates visually our vision. But they were right. And uh, so I'm going to be brief with two other obvious simple points. And you can ask me about the steps diagram in church elders another time. Here's my two brief points. First of all, Jesus is radically and beautifully different. Secondly, Jesus inspires leadership that is radically and beautifully different. In the New Testament... Um, Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus and he says to them that Jesus has ascended to his throne in heaven and that King Jesus gives the gift of leaders to his church. Imagine that. Just imagine that today. King Jesus on his throne in heaven thinking of us here in Rotherham. And giving us a gift. Jesus gives the gift of leaders to his church. Luke has traveled a long way to be here. But that isn't the biggest thing that's going on. The biggest thing is that Jesus has given Luke to you as a gift. Jesus has prepared Luke for this moment. It is Jesus who has called him to this ministry. It is Jesus who will equip him and provide what he needs for this ministry. So, if you are part of this church family, say thank you to God today for giving you the gift of another leader in your church. But the truth is that the gospel transforms what leadership actually is. I think we know that now. Apparently, Napoleon Bonaparte is said to have been impressed by Jesus. And Napoleon Bonaparte, he was an empire builder. He said this, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible form of comparison Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, 
I and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That's an incredible thing to say, isn't it? Listen, Luke doesn't come here to lord it over you like a boss. But to serve you in love. He doesn't come to twirl the baton at the front of the parade so that you'll be drawn to him. Luke comes to lead in such a way that will cause you to make much of Jesus and delight in him. And what this means is that Luke will need to follow Jesus closely. He isn't perfect. Jesus is. All church leaders are at best sinners who've been forgiven by Jesus. But Luke is here by the grace of God to help lead the ministry of our church here. He carries a heavy burden. So make sure that you make his job a delight and not a pain. He will have spiritual enemies, as we've seen, who will seek to ruin his work. So pray for him that he will be filled with the love and generosity of Jesus. But lastly, Jesus establishes a church that is radically and beautifully different too. Some of you know, I do really like nice aftershave. If you didn't know that, you know what to get me for Christmas now. Last year, my brother bought me some Chanel perfume uh, aftershave for men. And it's just one out. I'm really hoping he buys me another bottle this Christmas. It was really nice. I also like Hollister aftershave. So if, you, if you're wondering. Um, here, here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ in this world ought to smell like him. The reason I've pointed you this afternoon to Jesus is so that you can catch his fragrance. The church is not a political body. It is not the job of the church to grasp after power. But the church does have great and unique power to change people's lives and communities as this gospel does its work in people's hearts. Our community here in Rotherham will not be changed by people being impressed with our amazing programs. It will be changed by seeing broken people saved by God's grace. It will be changed as people see that they also are welcome to come and be amazed that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The church is not meant to be a museum, but a hospital, a rescue station. Surely Jesus turns the values of the world upside down. So Luke, be a leader, not a boss. 
And you guys here, all of you, make his job here a delight as you all submit yourselves to Jesus Christ first and then to one another in love for his glory. Amen. This is a really significant moment in the life of our church. Um, I just want to say a couple of things before I invite Luke to come up. And then I'm going to ask Luke some questions. They'll appear on the screen behind me. And then I'm going to ask all of you to stand. And I'm going to ask you some questions. And I hope you say the right answers. Because it will all go pear-shaped if you don't. Um, any call to Christian ministry like this one does not begin with us. It actually begins with God calling his people to his service. There's, amazing, there's an amazing little speech by Paul to the elders of the church in Ephesus where he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. God did it. But there is a sense in which God's secret calling is confirmed by a local church. God is behind it, but the local church confirms it and acts upon it. We've already done that as a group of church members this year, earlier. Um, and so Luke is here with us, and we're going to set him apart and commission him today. The duties of a Christian pastor are, first of all, to be faithful to Christ. Pastors are not called primarily to be popular or simply to please people all the time. Their calling is to serve Jesus by leading his church well. And that will mean feeding the flock, if I can use the shepherd analogy, by the consistent, accurate teaching of the word of God in all its breadth, and applying it to the needs of our congregation here. It will mean caring for people here by praying and exercising pastoral care and sometimes pastoral discipline. And it will mean leading this little flock here forward with other leaders here in lifestyle, service, mission, and by example and encouragement. So, Luke, I'm going to invite Luke uh, to come up, and um, I'm going to ask some questions, and I, I hope you say the right answers as well. <laughs> um, Luke, the role to which you're being set apart today is of vital importance in the life of the church. It is a high calling, and it can only be fulfilled through humble dependence on God. Therefore, I ask you... Uh, we, we have some slides here, I think. I ask you, in the name of God and of this church, do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and do you confess Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord? I do. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God and our only infallible rule of faith and conduct? Do you wholeheartedly and without reservation affirm your belief in this church's statement of faith? I do believe it. And do you believe in your heart that God has truly called you to pastoral oversight in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? I do.
This is a long one. Do you promise to fulfill this charge faithfully, preaching and teaching the word of God, leading his people here, praying for this congregation, caring for their spiritual needs, seeking to maintain the peace and purity of this church, and doing the work of an evangelist? I will. Do you promise to be faithful in prayer and in the study of God's word and to live in such a way, both publicly and privately, as to be an example to all? I do. Thank you. I'm going to read a couple of verses from the Bible that will appear on the screen. Peter, who once denied Jesus, 30 years later, wrote these words. Be a shepherd of God's flock that is under your care, serving as an overseer, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not loading it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Can I ask you all to stand, please? I'm going to ask you some questions, and just so you know, the answers are there as well, okay? So when I finish the question, you can all read the answer. So these are questions to you as our church. Do you, the members and congregation of this local church, believe in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit? And do you individually confess in you, Jesus Christ, as your Saviour and Lord? Do you receive Luke? whom you have called to be a pastor in this church. Do you promise to receive the word of truth from him in humility and love and to submit to his leadership? And do you promise to encourage him in these heavy responsibilities and to help him as he works hard for your spiritual growth? And do you promise to do all you can to care for his practical needs and for his comfort among you and for the honour of God? And finally, will you today also offer afresh your varied gifts in the service of Christ in this church? I'm going to read to you all uh, another scripture from the book of Hebrews. The writer there says this, Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you. As men who must give an account, obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. I'm going to invite Ian to come and join. It's a shame your name's not Ian Luke. <laughs> um, <laughs> I apologise. <laughs> um, Ian, um, another of our elders in the church here is going to pray for Luke. So let's, let's pray. Let's bow our head and pray together.
Heavenly Father, you are such a good God, and we see your hand at work clearly. Lord, how can people say that you do not exist when we see a family like this coming all the way from the States here to serve you? Lord, the way in which you bring this godly family over in order to join us, to labour here for your glory, not for their glory, for your glory. Father, you have been such a gracious God to this church. You have provided for us everything we needed. Not necessarily everything we wanted, but everything we needed when we needed it. Lord, we can see it here in the provision of this building, Lord. We see it here in the provision of Luke. As Ian has said, Lord, you have brought Luke here. You have brought him here to be a leader of your people. And so we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a God who provides for his people, who provides for his church. Lord, will you help us to see in Luke and Sarah's arrival here not just a family moving a long way to be in (coughs) Rotherham, but to see your hand at work, to see you building your church as you promised that you would do. Father, we do pray for Luke and Sarah. Lord, we thank you that you have saved them. We thank you that you've called them to yourself, Lord. We thank you that you have uh, sustained them throughout their life so far, that you have, uh, again, made them to marry each other, Lord, that you have given them the gift of children, that you have equipped them through your Holy Spirit, that you have uh, stirred up their heart, that you have stirred up their heart not to choose the easy things, Not to choose the the things that were straightforward, but to choose the things that are perhaps harder, the things that would, however, honour you. Lord, I thank you for them. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to work in their lives, that you would continue to equip them, Lord. Make their marriage strong, Lord. Father, we pray that you would uh, show them the work that they have to do here in Rotherham, work that you have prepared for them in advance. Perhaps work that they were not anticipating. Perhaps work that will not be as encouraging as they perhaps had imagined. Lord, but we do pray that you would equip them, Lord. We also pray that you would give them great joy as they serve. Father, we pray that you would allow them to see Uh, the fruit of their labour, that you would allow them to see your hand at work in our lives as they labour here among us. Lord, we pray that, and that we pray that, seeing that, that would see great joy, and they would say, yes, this is good, yes, this is right, yes, I can see why God has brought us here. Father, will you be with them in every way, in every shape and form, Lord? Will you uh, bless them Uh, in a way that is just, when they look back at it, they can say, yes, surely God has poured out on us every spiritual blessing. And Father, we pray for ourselves. We pray that, as Ian was talking about there, that we would uh, obey Luke as one of our leaders, Lord, that we would submit to him as one of our leaders, that we would listen to carefully to what he had to say to us, Lord, that we would allow him, that we would be open 
to him and Sarah as they invest into our lives. That we would not be hiding behind our own pride and our own, our own concerns, Lord. And Lord, help us to invest into their lives, Lord. Help us not to be uh, slow to speak into their lives, to, to tell them what we see. Lord, to tell them what we are experiencing, Lord. Lord, give him uh, great, uh, through your Holy Spirit, great clarity as he preaches, Lord, but give, through your Holy Spirit, give us listening ears as he preaches. Lord, give us uh, an openness of heart. Help us to see how Luke and Sarah clearly love us and help us to reciprocate that back to them. Uh, Lord, we pray that they will quickly get to know us and we will quickly get to know them. And we pray, Lord, that through that process we would start to build that relationship as we lock arms together for the gospel, as we lock arms together to labor together here in Rotherham. Lord, help us to be quick to see to their needs. Help us to be quick to look after their hearts. Help us to be quick to leave them alone when they need leaving alone because they're really tired. Lord, and help us to be uh, diligent in our support of them. Father, we thank you for this great work that you have done, for this great work that you are doing here, not because uh, we want to be great, not because we want Rotherham Evangelical Church to be great, but because you are great. And we, because we want to say, yay, Jesus. Because we want to say, look how good he is. Look how marvelous he is. Lord, and we want to point to Luke and Sarah as just one small example of how good you are. Because surely you are such a good God. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen.